Hello ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and you are listening to my show the Nishant Garg show This show is about extracting information on mindfulness personal development and spirituality I am on a mission to spread mindfulness and I would love for you to join me in this movement My today's guest is Celia Landman she is an experienced mindfulness facilitator and practitioner She holds a master of mindfulness studies degree from Lesley University with a focus on contemplative neuroscience, mindful communication and mindfulness in education. A published author on mindfulness, Celia currently leads meditation groups for teens and adults and develops personalized mindfulness programs to support individuals in all stages of life. Celia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nishant. I'm happy to be here with you. That's great, and it's been my pleasure to have you on the show. And I'm really looking forward to create mindfulness practices and so many new things from this call, so that people can learn so many new things and apply in their personal and professional life. and uh, celia how would you describe or how would your family describe what do you do <laughs> well um my family is a little vague sometimes they say i'm a mindfulness counselor they say i teach people to breathe that i my children might say that i just try to make people calm down um so what i do right now is i work in two places i work with um in a naturopath's office doing one-on-one meetings and uh creating practices to support individuals so i work mostly with adults there i also do small groups and then i work in a teen rehab that treats uh right now i'm working with girls that treats uh mental health issues uh eating disorders addictions um generalized fear and anxiety depression so i'm working with a range and i work in uh small groups there and one on one So I have two different windows into being with people. Okay, and when did you get into this mindfulness profession? Yeah. Well, well the profession part is that's a more difficult that's a more difficult world to be in, I think because it is emerging and I have a a degree from Lesley. I went to Lesley University and did the mindfulness studies program. So I have a masters in mindfulness studies, but it's not a pre-professional degree. So I can't really use that to go and say, "So, I'm a I'm a mindfulness educator." And people just don't know what to do with that. 
So usually people who have some kind of psychology degree or a teaching degree, you know, it, it would dovetail with that and work into their existing profession. So to have this as a, a full life, it's like an umbrella over my whole life that um, it's a really new path. And I got my, it's an extrapolation of my own practice. So I started practicing, well, I started practicing meditation over 20 years ago, but, but the path I'm on now, mindfulness in general, I started maybe, I'm going to say about 16 years ago, something like that. So, so you started meditation 20 years ago and mindfulness 16 years ago. I'm curious yeah. to understand what is the difference between mindfulness and meditation? So I think of mindfulness as this really big container. So mindfulness is, is the process of how we do things, how we look at a thought, how we look at our actions. It's that, that little bit of separation where we, we hold it with a greater awareness. So that's our, our metacognition. And meditation, I see as the mindfulness delivery system. So we can have, we can have thousands of mindfulness delivery systems, meditation being one, or uh, dishwashing being one, uh, caring for a child being one. So it's not limited. Mindfulness doesn't limit us in expression. So it's mindfulness is really the process. And I'd say meditation is um, one of the activities that we can do in mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness is a process. Is that what you're saying? And meditation is one of the activities or a practice in that mindfulness process or umbrella. Yes. And mindfulness can have multiple, any number of activities. Yeah. And meditation so like, is one of that. Yeah. Please. I like to call them the mindfulness delivery systems, you know, because we're all, we all like, we you know for thinking about things and systems, then that's, that's just one door into mindfulness. There are many doors, you know, when, and my, my practice is based in a, in a Buddhist tradition too. So the, uh, the Buddhist said there are 84,000 Dharma doors. So we have, which, which just means a lot. There's a lot of things we can do in mindfulness. We don't have to keep it. We don't have to keep it on the cushion. Uh, so uh, you, you just mentioned that 84,000 Dharma doors. Can you elaborate more on that, please? Yeah, so um, the Dharma in this context is the truth, the way, um, it's the path the Buddha set out so we can live a beautiful life. So we know how to take care of ourselves. We know how to take care of others. We know how to live on the planet without so much confusion and suffering. And there are 80... 4,000 opportunities, 84,000 
ways to access this. So in the, the Buddhist practice, the Buddhist thought world, there's all kinds of different options available to us. So some people, even in the Buddhist times, you know, he talked about different practices that we use. Some people use loving kindness meditation. Some people use breath concentration. Some people do walking meditation. And they're all beautiful ways to access what's true in us, that place of stillness in us, the place where we have capacity to hold what's going on in our lives. Is that clear or do you yeah, yeah. so yes yeah, curious it, it makes it makes it makes a lot of sense to me so do you have any favorite meditation practice that you do on your own so one thing i do which is really simple and it's something i teach people right away is um and it comes from the tradition i practice in which is the plum village tradition so in that tradition we practice stopping um, and you can stop on with a with the support of uh, an app on your phone i put a timer on my computer so when i write i have a little bell that rings every it rings like every 20 to 30 minutes and in that when that bell rings or when i when i know that this is the time I'm practicing stopping, I use three breaths. And with the first breath, I breathe in. And as I exhale, I release the tension from my body, the physical tension. So I let my shoulders drop. And I, I'm one of the people who carry a lot of stress in the back of my neck and in my shoulders. And we understand that the body and the mind work together. And it's impossible to have a serene, happy mind in a body that's holding lots of stress and tension. So with that first breath, it's acknowledging the body and exhaling whatever I can. And I, I imagine it flowing out through my feet into the earth that can hold everything. Then with the second breath, I check in with my emotions and just see what's there. Usually there's not one thing, you know, there's maybe there's unease or um, happiness, ex excitement. There's a lot of things usually, and I don't get rid of them. I just let them know. I, I understand, you know, there's good reasons you're here. As I exhale, I, I let them know there's space for all of them. And with the third breath, I inhale and I say silently here. And as I exhale, I say now. So I remind myself that this is it. You know, this is me on this planet in this moment with whatever's happening. And I'm here. I'm here for this. So it's this, it's this super simple practice of, just, of acknowledging the body in the first breath, releasing tension, acknowledging emotions in the second breath, letting them know, of course, you know, I understand. And the third is here now as we breathe in and out and putting that into our day, practicing with that, it, it gives us this kind of 
permission to be as we are, to stop so much striving and losing ourselves in our work, losing ourselves in our projects, and just pushing through. You know, I think that's that's a habit for a lot of us is to just push through. Yes. Until, you know, oh, and this is my meditation time. You know, this is my practice time. So we when we do little, little, like taking little sips of mindfulness through the day, we integrate and, and it's like pouring out, um, pouring out stress from this container. So it actually increases our capacity to be with what's arising. You know, and I tell people, it's not going to make your life perfect. It's not going to make things super easy but what it does is it gives us the space to be present for what isn't easy. Yes, and accepting all the emotions, positive, negative emotions, or any thought process that we are having inside our mind and body, and this mindfulness practice of taking a pause and breathing three breaths, it is we are stopping whatever is going on in the world outside of us and we can tap into our body through that process. It's a process to get into the power of now. Yeah, and it and the body really responds to being noticed. And the emotions really want us to know. They that's information. You know, we, we tend to be very judgmental with our emotions. You know, we like, like, oh, compassion, that's the good one. You know, oh, judgment, <laughs> aversion, oh, bad. Like, and we, so we, we discriminate with these emotions. But when we can just see them and go, oh, yeah, there's good reasons that's here. That wants me to know something. So we take out some of the sting of, and the stigma of having these, of having this full range of emotions. And we can be much more balanced. Too. So, um, and one of the, the ways I approach even emotion is working with the body because each emotion shows up in our body. You know, we, we feel things in the body. And it's usually in that, that kind of range. You know, we have that, um, the, the vagus nerve, so that runs, you know, through the face, the throat, the chest, the belly. And that's really where our feelings are happening. You know, we don't feel stuff like we don't feel anxiety in our ankle or fear in our, you know, in my thumb. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you, I'm, I'm very interested to know this. How do you personally deal with stressful situations well and and we're living in a time you know as we're talking right now we're in this this global pandemic um where there's lots of stress and i i'm you know seeing it in my family i'm seeing it in my community um what supports me you know, I do a couple of things. One is really seeing how impersonal this whole thing is. And the more I'm able to get myself, the I, me, mine part of myself out of the picture, 
I can just see things more clearly. So I don't have to respond from a place of personal affront and uh, victimization. I can really come from a place where I see that um, we have these, we have these, this teaching in Buddhism that I, I really value. And it's called the three characteristics or the three marks of existence. And they're um, anicca, anatta, and dukkha. And anicca is impermanence. Anatta is non-self. So knowing that this life, this body exists because of causes and conditions, that it is not, it's that, that living, that even this life is process. It's, uh, it's something that happens. It's not, it's not a fixed entity. And then dukkha is suffering of being. So uh, not to interrupt you here. So you said dukkha, right? Right. And I think it's a Sanskrit word, dukkha, and suffering. Yeah. Suffering is. Yeah. So can you please elaborate on nisha? Nisha or nicha? Anicha is permanence. So these are, um, uh, these are in the Pali language, which is really close to the Sanskrit. And I think they're probably the same in the Sanskrit. Um, so anicca is the impermanence. So we know, you know, look at how, how life is. We started as a single cell. We are so impermanent. Everything's impermanent. So this is a big, this is a big component of mindfulness that we know it, it all changes. Everything changes. And it's, it's this understanding of change and the understanding of the, the dukkha, the suffering we hold on to stuff. We want it to be, you know, we want what isn't possible. We want a fixed, a fixed world. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what's going to happen with this virus. I want, I want it to be like it was. And because of being in these, these vulnerable bodies that are not, that, that just exist because of the conditions that support us. Because none of us created our own selves. You know, we, we come through these lineages of generations. We come through our ancestors. We're supported by the oxygen on this planet, by the water, by the sun. You know, we don't exist independently. So when we touch into that, we see that you know, this, this idea of a, a lifespan, you know, that we're, we're dependent on the supportive conditions and, some, and when they don't exist anymore, it, things will change. So one, one teacher said about these three characteristics, he said, um, everything keeps changing, it'll shake you up and it's not personal. Uh, who is that teacher? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. It came to me maybe third-handed, so I don't know. But I, I think that's, you know, it really sums things up beautifully because, yeah, stuff keeps changing and we all get shook up. And that's the dukkha. That's the suffering of living in vulnerable bodies in a place 
where everything keeps changing. And we see this right now very clearly. Yeah. And uh, suffering is everywhere. And sometimes we can control that. Sometimes we cannot. Uh, I was reading this book called The Art of Happiness. And it's mm-hmm. from Dalai Lama. Somebody asked Dalai Lama, uh, how can we how can we stay strong in suffering? And I remember that his response was, suffering is going to come. And suffering is an opportunity to grow from that. And whenever anger, suffering is coming to our door, we should treat them as a guest. And I think it came from Thiknathan that we should invite all these sufferings as a guest because they are coming to teach us something. Yeah, it, well, it reminds me of the poem by Rumi, The Guest House, where he says, invite them all in, you know, even if they crowd your house with sorrows, because each one has, uh, I think it says, it's a guest from beyond. Yeah, and uh, people who are listening, yeah. uh, Rumi Jalaluddin is a 13th century Persian poet, and he had so many amazing poetries about life, spirituality, happiness, and much yeah. more. Yeah, he had his he had his eyes wide open. You know, he was he was awake. I really I really believe that. Um, and in response to the idea of suffering, even and I've had this experience where, um, and this is part of my practice, is meeting everything with uh, the intention to care the intention of gentleness and compassionate care. So my meeting my own suffering and being able to just hold my suffering and saying, oh yeah, this hurts. Of course I don't want this. And I care about this. And when I do that, there's this kind of subtle joy, this happiness that I can actually show up for myself and not abandon myself in the suffering. And it it's really um, amazing when it happens. Yes. Um, people who have mindfulness practices, they can understand, they are aware, and they can deal with all these stressful situations. Uh, I want to understand how people can learn, how people can, you know, embrace their sufferings and grief who do not understand or who do not have mindfulness practices, what do you recommend or what can you recommend any advice to somebody who is not into this mindfulness game or practice? Um, I really like um, the mindful self-compassion practices that uh, Kristen Neff and Chris Germer started. Um, Kristen Neff wrote a book called Self-Compassion that has some really beautiful insights and basic practices of how to start just just standing close to. And that, I think for me, uh, one thing I I learned before before I actually began doing more self-compassion practice was, was to even notice even noticing how I am. So, so that pause I was talking about, that three breaths, 
that's essential information. How am I right now? And when we, when we look, how am I, we've automatically decoupled from the, um, the pain circuitry. So when I am my sadness, my depression, my anxiety, and I'm, and I'm with it in that, you know, in my body, in my mind, there's no separation. But when I look, I've already, I've already witnessing what is from a place that isn't that. So it's the mind that knows the suffering isn't suffering. You know, it's just that observation, that little space that can witness it with, oh, oh, that's what's true. And it's removing this judgment. It's getting beyond right and wrong. It's going, this is true for me now. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes even that, even that is, is um, relief. This is very powerful. And I think our mind is designed for survival. And when we are in a painful suffering state, we can take a pause to really check in how am I? How am I feeling? We can name it in any way, the way we want. And we can, and one of the strong practices for me is gratitude journal. And in mm-hmm. and a, and a free flow journal where I can, I can write anything what is happening in my mind and body so that I can think in a better way. Now, if I'm having so many thoughts in my head, I'm going nuts. My anxiety level is going high. So, and, you know, it's a free flow journal for me. And then a gratitude journal where I remind myself that what do I have? What do I have now? instead of focusing on what don't, what I don't have. Yeah. So I, I think what you're pointing to is permission to just include it all, you know, not to get rid of anything. Because the minute I, I look at something and I go, yeah, that is not meeting my standards of mindfulness, you know, that's not meeting my, my expectation for myself. Um, I've already stepped outside of that space of acceptance. You know, so so when we open and we go, oh yeah, there's oh, there's jealousy happening or there's impatience, you know, without making it um a self-improvement project. Because I think we can do a lot of violence to ourselves with with all these self-improvement. You know, I, I love the quote from uh, Suzuki Roshi. He said, everyone is perfect as they are, and we all can use a little improvement. You know, but it's remembering, it's remembering that, oh, yeah, that our nature is awakened. Our true nature is love and light. And that it's just removing, it's removing everything that's getting in the way. So it's not about about fixing. It's about it's about opening. I, I see it. I see the energy of it. You know, the results might look the same, but the energy of doing it is, is 180 degrees different. 
Yes. And mindfulness is not a project to fix yourself. And this is very profound. You just mentioned that. It's about opening ourselves to the possibilities and removing the obstacles that is getting in our way and being enlightened. So we, we have so many layers, past conditioning, programming, you know, since we were born. And it mm-hmm. take, it's going to take time to uncover those layers and conditioning. And mindfulness practices and one of them is meditation, loving kindness, meditation, breathing, or any any other kind of meditation or self-compassion practice will help us, you know, getting into our body. Because what is happening in the world, we cannot change that. And uh, Celia, I want to understand how can we cultivate compassion for ourselves? Because... I've seen people, they are very compassionate towards others, but they are not compassionate towards themselves. Yeah. So how can we cultivate self-compassion in our day-to-day life and why? Yeah, it's, um, well, we know that um, that for a lot of people, it is easier to see the goodness in others. Um, and the population I work with, the teens, especially the kids who are um, addicts, um, I, I do lessons on forgiveness and forgiving ourselves. And I start by asking them, you know, how, do you have compassion for yourself? How do you feel about, you know, being kind to yourself and forgiving yourself? And most of the kids say, Mm-mm, that's a bad idea to forgive myself. You know, I can forgive other people, but not me because I'm an addict. And um, so we start with this idea. A lot of people have this idea that we need that critical voice to keep us good. That the more I judge and condemn myself, um, the safer I'll be. When in fact, it's it's the opposite because we don't we don't respond, we don't learn, you know, we, we're much more motivated to uh, be true and kind to ourselves than we are to um, not do things out of fear, you know, and punishment and shame. So, so what we work with is um, forgiving ourselves unconditionally and really opening up this whole idea of of guilt and shame, because I see that as the biggest obstacle to um, loving ourselves, that we, we think we're um, unworthy and that we're um, unredeemable. Yeah. Uh, forgiveness, unforgiveness is getting in our way to love ourselves. If we yeah. cannot love ourselves, we cannot love others. And if we are not compassionate toward us, we cannot be compassionate towards others. And this forgiveness, the whole thing of forgiveness is not easy, actually. This is very tough. And it took me so much time to really understand how to forgive myself, how to forgive others. And this is a spiritual power to forgive us and forgive somebody else. What what practice would you recommend 
to somebody so, to forgive? I So there's a basic Buddhist practice, but I've kind of changed it a little and, and elaborated. And I give this to my, I give this to my teens I work with. And it's, um, so the first step is um, starting, and, and I did this every day for three years because I needed so much forgiveness for, um, for my life, you know, for um, the things that had happened and all in the ways, the way I thought about myself. So, so I begin with forgiveness for this body, for not being perfect, for breaking, for getting sick, for getting old, for, um, you know, ultimately failing. Yeah, for ultimately this body, you know, can't support us forever. So just forgiving the body for all the aches and pains and suffering in a body. And then the second one is to ask the body to forgive me for not caring for it. So all the ways I've not listened, when I was tired, when I was hungry, when I was, you know, the body wanted to rest and I said no, or, you know, the body wanted to move and I said, no, we're doing this or all the ways we ignore this body and don't, don't care for it with, uh, with the way, the way we should. And also asking the body to entrust itself to us, to be willing to trust us, to care for it. And then I offer forgiveness for all the ways I uh, will hurt myself today, knowingly or unknowingly, through my, through my thoughts, through my actions, and through my words. And I forgive myself for holding on to the idea that uh, I'm responsible for other people's uh, mental formations, that I'm responsible for their thoughts. And... Letting and knowing that I can make mistakes and I'm still worthy of my own love. And then I forgive. Let's see, where am I in my forgiveness? Because uh, it's multi steps. Yeah. And then um, I forgive to the extent I'm able, I forgive others for the harm they will cause me intentionally or unintentionally today. Only, only when I'm ready. We have a big talk about this before because yeah. forgiving others is um, something we absolutely do for ourselves. It's not done to please anybody. And we fully have to understand how deeply we've been hurt. And also with these kids, especially because I work with um, people who come through trauma, um, Forgiveness also doesn't mean that we uh, trust. We can forgive somebody and, and really set safe boundaries for ourselves. We can forgive somebody and not have them in our lives. So yeah. to the extent we're able, we forgive other people and allow them to be free from perfection. And, and I use this phrase that when we forgive ourselves, we release ourselves from this prison of perfection. Because it is a prison. Yes, this is this is very deep, and uh, and forgiveness doesn't mean that we are putting up somebody's shit on ourselves. It just simply means that uh, 
I don't receive your gift, whatever <laughs> you're offering to me. Yeah. It's like Dalai Lama mentioned that if somebody is offering you anger, refuse to accept their gift. And when mm-hmm. we are forgiving somebody else, it's not about them. It is about us. And when we are forgiving, we are opening that stream of flow and we are removing the obstacles. And if somebody is not able to forgive another person, it means deep down we are not able to forgive ourselves. If we can forgive ourselves first, then it becomes a lot easier to forgive others. It is, it is along the lines of self-compassion. If we are compassionate towards us, then it, it is a lot easier to be compassionate towards somebody else. I think everything starts from us, from self-love. If we have self-love, then we can love somebody else. And when we're talking, you know, the, the population I work with um, ha- coming through abuse, when we're talking about abuse um, and forgiveness, it is extremely important um, for us to know that we need to understand the pain that has been done, the full extent of the damage that's been done to us before offering forgiveness. And forgiveness is only when we um, have really been with our suffering around this issue. Uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's when we no longer want to carry the, the hatred and blame. And it's understanding, you know, it's opening to understanding some of the, that, that backstory of the other person, that their causes and conditions. But it's also, um, it's got, it has no timetable. And I, I really encourage people not to even step into that idea of forgiving a, a, the, the perpetrator. I mean, it, until it's, it's, the work has been done for themselves because um, it's really an empowering thing when we do forgive. And the work of understanding our own pain, our own trauma comes, comes as the, the groundwork first. Yep. And in your mindfulness sessions with individuals and in groups, I want to understand that what, what is the main struggle people feel in forgiving somebody? In forgiving others yeah. or forgiving themselves? Forgiving others and forgiving ourselves in both cases. Well, I think people really struggle um <laughs> it's funny because some kids some kids say just like no i don't want to forgive it's like just forgiveness in general is is a bad idea um i find that uh people it, it really depends who who i'm with um older people seem to have more ability to forgive others and really withhold forgiveness from themselves because of uh, this idea of, of we should, we sh- I should be like this. I, I made them, you know, it's, it's forgiving ourselves for mistakes for the way we uh, were unskillful, the way we hurt somebody accidentally. Um, that's, I see that a lot with uh, the kids. I'm trying to, they, they have a lot of trouble forgiving themselves too. And it's because they don't believe 
that their um, their lives are worth anything, that they really have diminished sense of uh, value and connection. They don't see how um, they don't see the goodness in themselves, and they're more they're more willing to forgive others because they see other people usually as more important. I think, than their own life. Yeah. I want to understand this case. Uh, do you remember in your experience that if any older person, uh, doesn't matter any in any age, uh, was not, was very reluctant to forgive somebody? And how did you navigate through the process of unforgiving to forgiveness? So I... I let this happen as it happens. I mean, I, I, we start where we are and we start by forgiving the place that's angry. No, we just start with forgiving that. And, and the forgiveness for the other person may or may not happen, but that's really, you know, that's like, like the bud that opens at the end. And it, even if it, if that piece doesn't fully happen, it's not, we don't want to force it, you know, like, like pulling the, the chrysalis off the butterfly, all the stuff that's there needs attention, the pain, the resistance, we start where we are, we just forgive, oh, you know, the, the rage, we, we forgive whatever's there, because that is what's calling to us now. And I, I, you know, forgiveness can take years. Forgiveness can take a lifetime. It doesn't have, it's not a race. And that's not the end. The forgiveness of others really isn't the goal. You know, it's to be with, be with our own pain, our own hurt, to get to the place where we can even see the, um, the connection to others. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. If you are just joining us, you are listening to this podcast with Celia Landman. Yes, and forgiveness may not happen in a moment. It may take days, weeks, months, and sometimes years if the pain is very deep and if the suffering has been coming from the past. It, it will take time and it's that's when we get to be patient with ourselves we get to be patient with our process we are not doing all this mindfulness work to fix ourselves we are creating new possibilities in our life by having all these mindfulness practices yeah so i have this story that um i had a teenage person uh, come to me because there was a lot of suffering in her family. And my, my friend who was friends with the family, she said, maybe you can talk to them because um, the situation was that the dad had been physically abusive and he had um, been physically abusive with the mom and this teenage girl. And the mom wanted to reconnect with the dad because they had gone through some uh, 
of their own work together. And she really wanted to bring him back into their lives and in the house. And the daughter was having a lot of difficulty accepting him back and wouldn't speak to him. And, um, and I, when I had the opportunity to talk to her, um, I said, tell me, you know, what's going on? And she said, everybody's pressuring me to forgive my father. Everyone wants it to be like nothing ever happened and I can't do it. And my advice for her was that, yeah, you can't do it because that's not what's true for you. Something happened and the process has to, she needed to work with her own feelings of, um, uh, you know, that, that loss of trust and feeling so deeply hurt because her father had, had hit her. And uh, she needed to do all that before forgiveness. So, so they wanted me to kind of talk her into forgiving her father. And that was the last thing I, I wanted to do for this girl because, because she was, that would be another level of, of um, dishonesty for her because what was happening in her was so, um, needed so much care needs so much attending to, and she needed to really heal that part to be able to trust and to uh, even know how to take care of herself. You know, kids need protection. You know, it's, it's kids forgiving and adults forgiving. It's very, it's two different things too, because as adults, we can set these clear boundaries. You know, we can say, well, I don't want you in my life. Because you're not, you're not, I'm, you're not safe for me to be around. With a kid, it really can't do that. So it's it's even more important that she's supported by people around her. So you know, forgiveness is is really can be very complex. And when we just just saying somebody that forgive another person or forgive yourself, it's not going to happen. just simply like that and and in in this story you just mentioned you were showing empathy towards her that you know we are with you it's okay to feel that it's okay to accept we get to accept whatever we are feeling whatever pain and suffering we are going through we need to embrace that feeling first and then when we feel that and then we can learn to release and forgiveness is nothing but a process to release that resentment that we are holding on to for ourselves or for somebody resentment is like drinking poison uh, assuming that they are thinking that somebody you know if somebody drinks poison and die mm-hmm. well and i and i think also something else that that needs to be said is that when we practice self-compassion, when we practice forgiveness, it is not a, an agreement to accept abuse. It does. It is not saying we don't take care of ourselves. We don't set boundaries. Um, we in self-compassion, we, we care deeply about how we are and how our life is And what is okay for me? And that's what I, I tell these kids too, is, you know, that there's so much pressure to be approved of, and not just for kids, 
but all of us, there's so much pressure to be, you know, to get all those likes and to, to be um, someone of value that this is practice is very counterculture because we turn our eyes inward and say, instead of, am I okay for you? It's, is this okay for me? Is, is this okay for me? And when I check, is it safe for me? Is it, um, is this a place I want to, I want to stay? I want to be, you know, are these friends okay for me? Is this work feeding me, you know, not just giving me money, but is this work that supports my values? When I keep checking, is this okay for me? It just flips the narrative and we, we look at our lives a little differently. Yeah, and with this statement, we are changing the story that we are creating in our head. And this reminds me, of Tara Brock saying that the power of saying yes to everything, it does not mean that we are accepting the abuse or, you know, we are letting people, you know, do whatever they want to do in our life. It's not about that. It's about saying yes to whatever universe is bringing into our life and learning from that and embracing that so that we can do something about it. And coming back to Dalai Lama saying that every suffering, every pain is an opportunity for growth. Yeah, and it's meeting those those things with wisdom. It's meeting them with discernment. It's not um, you know, it's as my teacher says, Joanne Friday, she's a Dharma teacher in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. She says, it's not being a limp noodle. We don't just lose our whole um, you know, common sense that we know, you know, yet we have this ultimate reality where, where we are all interconnected and we are all part of each other, but we also have this, this historical reality where, yeah, stuff happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you just mentioned Thignathan, uh, people who don't know about Thignathan, can you please elaborate more? on Sure. Him? Sure. So Thich Nhat Hanh was um, a Buddhist monk in Vietnam who was very active during the, the Vietnamese War. And he came to the U.S. to speak out about uh, ending the war, to speak to the U.N. And he was um, barred. He was exiled while he was in the U.S., so he couldn't return home to Vietnam. And he is responsible for bringing this beautiful practice of engaged Buddhism into the world. So he has set up uh, his a big monastery in Bordeaux, France, called Plum Village. And then there's uh, other satellite monasteries in the U.S. And he's brought this practice of of the uh, Vietnamese Zen lineage and really infused it with ways to practice in the world. And especially for those people who are activists, who are really connected to um, engaging in protecting the planet, in um, civil rights, in honoring all life, 
So he shows us how to do it without anger, without resentment, and with, most importantly, being peace, being peace in ourselves. Because if we start, if we bring violence and aggression into our thought pattern, into this judging, we, if we get caught in the right and the wrong of it, and we get all righteous around things, we are part of the violence. We're part of the problem. So it's this way of being that can be the foundation for change in a different way. Yeah, and violence in the external world is definitely an indication of violence inside our body or something is happening in our body. If we are not peace with ourselves, we may not be at peace in the external world. And it's inner being. And I think it's in this world, in this culture, in society, we are running in the external world we are running towards materialistic things and focusing more on the outer side and basically if it is more to work on the inner side and thiknathan practices more on the engagement side so can you please elaborate some practices that he offers to engage with people with peace and calm well all the the practices that we do are really practices that we we start with ourselves just as you were saying Shant, that um and he's quoted as saying you know peace in myself peace in the world so it's really the quality of our consciousness that we bring to the world um one of his or perhaps his greatest gift to the world is establishing a community. So in Sanskrit, it's called Sangha. And Sangha. Sangha, yes. So we have these worldwide Sanghas where people come together and we, we do practices for, um, for connection as well. So in our, in our Sangha, in our practice group, we have something called uh, Dharma sharing which is where we actually practice mindful speech and deep listening. And we learn to have space for others suffering. We learn how to let people hold their own suffering without us having to give it, give advice or fix or um, respond. So we trust them with their, difficulties and we trust their process but we also give this space where people can share this so it's like um Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how our suffering you know when we are so burdened by suffering we can fall into despair and in the sangha this group of community of spiritual friends is the raft that can support us in these times when we're so full of suffering so even just having people listen, I mean, and it's, it's an amazing gift to have people just listen. I don't know if you've experienced that. Yeah, listening is not easy. Active, active listening is not easy. It doesn't come naturally to me and I practice it mm. every single time. 
because we want to listen from the experience of from our own experience you know we get to listen from somebody's experience by putting putting ourselves in their own shoes and then we can really understand their pain and that's where empathy plays a very big role well i can i can feel how engaged and how you're listening how beautifully you're listening right now <laughs> so i might argue with you about your your uh dismissal of your listening skills um yeah but when we so there's a few uh guidings that i are guidelines that we offer to keep to keep the the practice safe too for in these groups and one of the most wonderful ones is double confidentiality where after we share we ask the other person would it be okay if i speak to you about what you shared and then they can say no because we just leave it we just want to speak it we don't want anyone to give us this um you know people and people think they're helping when they give advice or they give uh solutions or they you know tell us about their friend who had the same thing happen to them and and it just it takes something from our own experience so we have that confidentiality and the confidentiality that's not shared outside the group but um one of the things that i've learned is to and this comes from um a teacher in the inside tradition donald rothberg who talks about 50-50 listening so he doesn't mean you know you space out 50% of the time he means that when we listen we also listen to our own reactivity and we also pay attention to the breath in the body to the muscular tension in the body and we just stay with you know again that question what's going on what's going on in me how is this for me right now and when i find myself getting a little reactive when i find myself you know getting that little friction of like mm, you shouldn't have done that or why did you say that? or oh oh i would you know whatever whatever comes up oh that needs some attention i breathe with that so i can open to that space of of being with the other person and another thing that i've learned is to imagine the words that i'm speaking the words that the other person say just uh, imagine i'm doing that and that shows a lot that in that breathing process we can get into our body and really feel and tell our tell our mind that we need to listen we need to actively listen this person and in that breathing process we can release our own story that we are creating because our responsibility in that conversation is to understand that person's feeling from where they are coming from not to attach our own feelings and our story with that because it is about them not about us yeah and and when i when i when i breathe like that then i i can remind myself just listening just listening just you know cuz we all need that reminder because we are trained 
in life to always have a response to, you know, to have an opinion, to say something brilliant. You know, we put a lot of stock in our, our communication and how much we add to things. This is not about adding. So it really, it really involves some uh, unconditioning, some loosening up of all the stuff we think we should do. Yes. And this saying from Thich reminds me that happiness is a way. There is no way to happiness. I think I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. I think he, he's saying that there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. The right. more we are trying to find happiness in the outside world, we are never going to find that. It's already inside of us. We do not have to seek somewhere. And when we remove those obstacles to the happiness, we find happiness. And when we find happiness, we may not have any name for that. You know, what we experience in the outer world is a thrill. It's an excitement. That is not a happiness. Happiness, we can only experience happiness. We may not be able to name that happiness. So I would like to ask you that how can we cultivate happiness? Again, we, how can we remove the obstacles to the happiness? Well, and there's a practice for that too. I mean, there are practices for everything. So one of the things I, and I just uh, did this with my, my kids in rehab uh, last week was there's a practice um, called 10 breaths for happiness. And I am trying to think of who wrote, there's a, a very thin little book uh, that about this. And I'm going to try to remember who wrote it. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up, but um, maybe I can pull it up after and let you know. Yeah. Uh, so what it, what it is based on is, um, that we have this and, and you, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've heard about this Nishanda is that this, um, negativity bias. So we have this. I have not actually. Oh, so yeah. So human, oh, here it is. So it's a book by Glenn Schneider and he's in the, uh, Plum Village tradition too. And um, but it's it's important to know about this um, this negativity bias. So human beings, as as we evolved, we are excellent excellent at threat detection. So we lived communally, tribally for thousands and thousands of years, and it is much more important for us to know where the poison berries are than for us to know. You know, where the beautiful irises are blooming, because one of the poison berries are going to endanger our um, gene line. They're going to endanger our lives. And if so, we hold on to that. So neuroscience tells us and um, uh, Dr. Rick Hansen's done a lot of research with this. Um, we hold on to the negative about five times more than the positive. So for example, if we have a dog bite us, that uh, stays with us 
much, much more than if we've had um, a happy encounter. You know, we had a, a happy dog meeting. And it takes five contacts with a, a dog or another dog to even kind of erase that. So it's like a path in the woods where, where brush has grown up. It's not gone because it's still there. But it's, we, need, we need a lot of positive interactions to uh, counteract a negative one. So I tell my husband when he does something, you know, unskillful that, okay, now I need five. I need five good things from you. <laughs> so we can be kind of even here. Um, sometimes that works. Uh, so we're, we're super, super attenuated to what will hurt us. So we remember every, every, you know, harsh word. We remember the pain so much more than the good stuff. So does yeah. that sound yeah. familiar? Yeah, now it sounds very familiar because I think, I'm not sure if it is me or just human beings that we focus on all the negative things and we are always focusing on what we don't have rather than focusing on what we have. And that's where the practice of gratitude, you know, and gratitude practice can be anytime, you know, it, it doesn't have to be so many big things. It can be along the lines of drinking coffee if you're enjoying that and yeah. focusing, focusing on the positive side. And yeah, this is this is very clear to me. So since you mentioned about your husband, that you do all this positive thing, but it doesn't work all the time. So how can you <laughs> practice non-attachment? Because I'm reading a lot of things on non-attachment slash yeah. detachment uh -huh. from the things from human beings and this is very very tough and mm. the attachment is always there unconsciously so how can we practice conscious detachment from the outcome from human beings from things so that Buddhism, yeah yeah stepping into something i practice with a lot which is equanimity but i just want to circle back to give you that practice for the 10 breaths it is a lot it is similar to gratitude practice but it's even a little more uh codified it's even a little more of a um formal i guess you might say so what it what it is is um it takes approximately about 20 seconds i mean i've heard different different numbers but somewhere around there to create a neural pathway so when we can actively stop you know you were mentioning drinking uh, a, a cup of tea or just enjoying whatever we're enjoying you know say we get uh, a positive email from a friend, you know, saying they appreciate something we did, that we, instead of like rolling over it, like, oh yeah, that's, that is supposed to be that way. Let's see, you know, where's the obstacle? Where's the obstacle here? Um, which is how we roll, how we roll as a species. Um, you know, and, and I see this myself in, I, I've gotten two emails the same day, one saying, 
I love that group you facilitated. It was so lovely. I'm going to bring a friend. Another said, you know, it just wasn't for me. I won't be back. Guess which one I focused on. Yeah. And I'm looking at going, I know what I'm doing. Like, it's very clear to me. I can't even, I don't, I wasn't taking in the positive, but boy, could I make space for that one that, you know, that confirmed all that stuff about me that, oh yeah, this isn't, something's wrong. Something's wrong. So this practice of 10 breaths actively uh, rewires the brain. It actively creates these neural pathways. So when we find something positive, we stop, we relax the body, we soften the body, we look at whatever or, or feel, we tap in with all our senses. So how's my body right now? What's the, what's the texture in my body? What's the color I'm looking at? Is there a, you know, a scent in the room? How does it feel to be with this good thing? And we pause for about 10 breaths. So that creates this neural pathway of happiness. And then we try to do this during the day. Can and we, it, I'm not to interrupt you here. Can we do those 10 breaths right now? I would love it. So if you can give a demo, please. Yeah. So, um, and I can do some, I'll do some guiding. So please. wherever you are, it works beautifully with finding something in your environment. And if you can't find anything in your environment, I would suggest just a, mem- a very recent memory, not a, not a long-term memory. So in my space, I have two daffodils that are on my little meditation altar that I'm going to, that I'm going to enjoy. So do you have something Nishant in your space that even a color that you enjoy? We're looking at I a- have the painting of Buddha in my room right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So something that makes us happy. So just pausing and allowing the whole body to soften. So really giving ourselves permission to open to what is pleasant, to open to something that brings us some ease, some joy that connects us to something beautiful. And seeing how, how is the body responding to being with pleasant? What are the sounds around us? Is there anything we notice in our environment? Really seeing, really being with, and just noticing the body breathing with this. Letting it come into every cell of this body. Just letting it into your heart. Letting it right into your heart space. Letting the beauty speak to what is true for you. 
And just taking one more inhale, one more exhale. And there, you've, you've just created a neural connection to happiness. How was that? That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And happiness is free. I, I <laughs> yeah. feel that there are books galore on happiness. And sometimes we just get to tap into the breathing process to really understand happiness. And since we have talked a lot about suffering and pain, I remember this saying from Anthony DeMello. Have you heard of Anthony DeMello? Yes, I have. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Anthony DeMello. So he, he always mentioned that there are two sides of a pendulum. So if we are on one side of the pendulum, we will go to another side. And one side is suffering and another side is happiness. When we are suffering in our life, it's not going to last forever. We will find happiness soon. Just be patient with that process. It's an opportunity for learning. It's an opportunity for growth. And embrace that. Seek support from people. Find some positivity. Do not neglect yourself. Be compassionate towards yourself. Be kind towards yourself. Life is happening for you. I digressed. <laughs> well, it, and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says to be with suffering, we need to um, we need to be with joy, in order to have the capacity to be with suffering. So those two things have to be, and you're you're absolutely right. Those two things have to be both there, because if our lives are just suffering. We, we're not any good to anybody, including ourselves, because we're, we're just caught in that, that pain. So really knowing, knowing that, you know, even in the midst of, in the midst of all this stuff, that it's possible. And it's sometimes, you know, the hardest thing is giving ourselves the permission to enjoy something when others around us are suffering, you know, but, but it's, it's nourishment, it's, it's food. So we can show up for them and for ourselves with some hopefulness and some, uh, a little buoyancy, you know, we all need that, especially in the midst of this really complicated time we're living in. Yeah. That's it. That is so amazing, Celia. And before I ask my last question to you, I want to ask you, how do you make distinction between inner being and interbeing? Hmm. So by inner being, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Inner being, I can spell that I-N-N-E-R, inner and inter, I-N-T-E-R. Mm -hmm. So what is interbeing? What is the concept of interbeing? Interbeing yeah. is 
So I think the idea of interbeing actually would encompass both of those things. So the idea of interbeing is that we are not separate in any way. Um, and this is something Thich Nhat Hanh uh, created this word because so if, if you have the example of a flower and you think the flower is a total separate thing, but if you take the sunshine out of the flower, the flower doesn't exist. If you take the water, the rain, if you take the earth, if you take um, the time out of a flower, the time it takes for the flower to grow, you don't have a flower. Um, so we see that that nothing exists separately, that everything is created through this vast network of interconnection and that we're no different than that. That if I didn't have uh, two parents, if I didn't have the sun that nourishes uh, the plants that give that I eat, I wouldn't be here. If I didn't have this oxygen that we see how Delicate, and I think right now with this coronavirus, we absolutely see interbeing in a whole different way, how connected we are. And we also see this, this longing for community. You know, I'm so touched by uh, recently, I just saw these videos from Italy of people singing, you know, people who are, are all in social isolation, but they're singing out their windows to each other to support each other. And it's so moving to see this, this interconnectedness and um, our inner being, how I am, how I am right now, you know, supports my availability to see my connection to others too. So I really think they, they as, as Thich Nhat Hanh, another Thich Nhat Hanh word, they inter are. They inter are with each other. How do you how do you spell that? I N T E R dash A R E. Inter R. Yeah, we inter are because you and I we're not the same people as when we first started speaking to each other. Things have changed. We've changed. So we we co create our our experience together. We're in it together, you know, which is really beautiful. And it's like, instead of saying like, oh, I have to show up and do a good job. It's like, I have to be available to be with someone. Oh, I, I have an opportunity to, um, to really see somebody else and to respond. I mean, that's such a different idea than, um, performance right yeah and uh, we are in this present moment awareness like Thich Nhat Hanh says and it's, it's present moment awareness and this is a wonderful moment and thank you for explaining for that Celia and my last question to you is what is the impact you want to have on this world mm. so I, um, I visit my intention a lot to keep myself uh, clear. And my intention is to really let people know 
their own goodness to, um, especially for those who um, have lost the idea that they matter and that they're of any value, to let them see that there is this purity in all of us. There's this absolute holiness that can't be changed by anything we've done. So showing up for others in that way and also um, being a presence of care for myself and others at every moment. So that means, you know, whatever's going on, uh, looking at it with the eyes of compassion and really wanting to to send that message of of love. So that's kind of a big job. <laughs> and I need to, <laughs> to nourish a lot of a lot of joy and friendship. And it, and it can be very challenging. The uh, population I work with, the teens I work with, can be really challenging sometimes because they are so uh, deep in their own despair and depression. So, so doing it, you know, we touched on the, the non-attachment piece before. Doing it without any striving, without any pushing, and just letting letting it fall like rain, you know, just uh, keeping myself as clear as possible about that it is not about me. It is not, it's not my agenda. This is happening in their time. So that's a rather long answer to your well, The impact is always longer and bigger. And... Thank you so much for being on the show, Celia, and I'm truly honored. Thank you. It was so lovely to connect with you and to, it really nourished, um, hmm, it nourished that need for, for support and uh, for the need to, to listen and to be listened to. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Celia Landman. You can find her work at https colon slash slash buddhistwriting.wordpress.com. If you have enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe to the new podcast updates at my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me. And please, please provide your reviews on iTunes, which will really help me. So thank you again.